First and foremost, as is our way, I pay respects to traditional owners of country. I come to you from the Gadigal land, land that has been known, loved and nurtured for 60,000 years. We're on the Camperdown campus of the University of Sydney for this Sydney Ideas. I pay respects to all of the countries that you're coming from, no matter where you're coming from or who you are. There are many, many different mobs of people that belong to this country, and I know each and every one of you who's listening in right now also belongs to a family and to a community, and I deeply pay my respects to them as well. So, welcome. We're here for a really interesting day. But first, I want to give you a tiny bit of background about how this came to be. Today, we're going to listen as Bruce Pascoe shares insights into sustainable farming and practices. Uncle Bruce will be joined by Dr. Angela Patterson, plant breeder and agricultural scientist from University of Sydney. This is the first Arthur and Hilda Winch annual lecture in pre-colonial Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture. I wanted to share with each of you some of the background to the people of this lecture uh, that this lecture is named after and to the insightful considerations from its generous benefactor, Mr. Ron Winch. And I know Ron is listening to us today, so welcome to you as well. Mr. Winch has a very active and deep connection to our university and I'm pleased to have shared some very open and inspiring conversations with him over the last few years. His parents, Arthur and Hilda Winch, he describes them as good, honest, hardworking people. In their day, ordinary folk didn't receive much in order, um, in some way, um, of financial remuneration. You know, things were hard-earned, as it is for many of us. This lecture series serves to purpose the purpose of putting a spotlight on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander experience before the arrival of European um, of the European people in 1788. Mr. Winch and his family believe that older peoples and ancient cultures have very much to teach us, especially in a land where 60,000 years of habitation has proven that today we have a long-standing and the only continuous culture in the world, just to simply prove that. We can find fundamental and original truths by looking deeper into this part of history and start to understand the way of being and the ways of knowing that are designed really for us to understand, to learn from and to grow with. Today, we're going to hear more of Indigenous knowledges about land care and how this is rightly gaining a greater recognition across the mainstream. It is my absolute pleasure to introduce to you our keynote speaker, accomplished author, Bruce Pascoe. Bruce is a proud Ewan, Bunurong and Tasmanian man and currently lives on his beautiful farm in Gippsland, Victoria. Over to you, Bruce Pascoe. Thank you very much. I'd also like to acknowledge the uh, people of Gadigal land. Um, but I'd also like to acknowledge um, Ewan people from this land and um, all those on whose shoulders we subsequently stand because we do it every day. We build on their knowledge um, and, and their care for this continent. There are still people in Australia who can't bear the idea that Aboriginal people had any competence, uh, any interaction with the land, any organised food production, 
And some of those people try to drag red herrings across the trail um, in order to distract people uh, from the truth of this country's history. And I'm not talking about the truth as I see it. I'm talking about the truth as the explorers reported it, as they wrote it down. Now, if you read the journals of Lieutenant Gray, where in a part of Western Australia, that, that typically dry and hot country, he being the first European to cross it, came across fields of Warren that had been so deeply turned that he couldn't walk across it. And looking in both directions, um, he could not see the end of these fields. Day after day, he came across more of these. And each time, he couldn't see the end of the fields. This is a vast contribution of labour to the production of food. Who did it? The pixies? It's obvious that Aboriginal people were engaged in an interaction with the soil. I have called it farming and agriculture in Dark Emu, but you could find other names for it if those words offend you, because the words agriculture and horticulture um, are the words of Europeans. And things like the term hunter-gatherer are also terms invented by Europeans. And um, it doesn't really worry me whether you call Aboriginal people farmers or hunters and gatherers, as long as you recognise <coughs> that Aboriginal people were engaged in an intricate and sustained interaction with the soil. And it's that soil which is so important to us today. And it's that soil that we saw last November on the news blowing out to the Pacific Ocean and some of it landing in the New Zealand highlands. If we're good farmers, we don't allow that. So Australians need to read their history as reported by the first European entrance into country. You don't have to believe Aboriginal people if you don't want to. Just read what the first Europeans said about that country. And we need to accommodate that in our lives and consider that Aboriginal people have been on this continent for at least 100,000 years. Some archaeology is saying 120,000 years. And you can argue the toss about that, but... Even if it were 80,000 years, it is a very, very long time to practice any kind of plant relationship and food production. And much can be learnt in that time. But also, if you managed to deliver a country after that enormous length of time that is fertile, productive, wonderfully beautiful to look at. And you have done a lot of things right. Australia needs to look at that rightness, that relationship with the soil. What I've been doing with local Ewan people here, four of whom are working on the farm here today, 
we've been trying to grow the old original domesticated plants of Aboriginal people. And when you say domestication, some Australians get upset um, because they think that Aboriginal people are incapable of domesticating a plant, incapable of any kind of horticulture. But if you begin to harvest a plant at a particular time of the year or times of the year and handling that plant in a particular way, and you do that over a period of 10 years, you've begun to domesticate the plant. If you do it over 80,000 years, you have domesticated the plant. And what we see now in our fields and paddocks and the, the countryside, this is an inheritance from those old Aboriginal people. So we're trying to grow those grains and the tubers, the mernon, the bulbine lily, um, as many of these plants as we can so that we can demonstrate that it's possible to grow them, that Aboriginal people remain in contact with the knowledge and that we can make commercial uh, products out of these to deliver to the Australian people. And Australian people are clamouring uh, for this food. Ever since we've begun talking about it, we're getting emails and phone calls, letters every day from people wanting either Murnong tubers or the seed, uh, kangaroo grass uh, flower or the seed. And we're struggling to supply because what Aboriginal people lack is land. You know, we have, a, we have labour. You know, we're working here today. Um, and we've got 140 acres here, um, which I, I was able to buy with no assistance from any government. But that's not very much ground. We need more. We need Aboriginal people to be uh, trained uh, to work that land. The, the people we have here now are learning an enormous amount. We learn something every day about these grains and tubers. But we, we need assistance to do it. We don't need um, an invention. We just need assistance. And we certainly don't need resistance. And um, occasionally you come across that. But it's the young people of Australia who are driving this enthusiasm. And we've got to be proud that our young Australians, both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal, are interested in these things. But the benefit for Australia is that the plants we're talking about are perennial. They're not annuals. The yield per acre is much lower than it is for annuals, but you don't plough the land, so therefore you don't have those dust storms we saw last November. There are some parts of Australia that have lost 18 metres of topsoil. It is common for there to be three to four metres of topsoil loss. Farmers should be astounded, shocked, dismayed by the loss of topsoil because that's Australian capital. And that in Australian capital was an inherited from Aboriginal people. And it must have been so distressing for those old Aboriginal agriculturalists to watch the damage being done to their soil, to their water, and to their plants. But today, the benefits. Um, of these plants 
apart from being a perennial, is that they have massive root systems. Kangaroo grass is an amazing grass, and it is difficult uh, to harvest, winnow, and um, turn into flower. I, I don't uh, deny that, but its attraction to Aboriginal people was its nutritional values, but also the fact that its root system was so vast that it was holding the soil together and tapping both moisture and nutrition way down in the soil and bringing that up to the surface. This is a, a farmer's dream of uh, fertility. And our Australian soils are very infertile traditionally because of the age of this continent. So we have to protect soil and we have to look at its composition and care for it like we would our own child because, in fact, the soil uh, is all we have. We need to look at all the, um, the fungi that help these plants grow. We know quite little about these at the moment, but we know that it's important. We know it's important for our health. So all of these things are really important for Australia. This is not a gimmick. Uh, this is not a good fella, black fella, bad white fella. It's not about that. It's not about some kind of revisionist idea of history. It's just about history. Just about the history of the continent and it involves black people and in the last 250 years, white people. And no one's going away. No one's going to leave the continent. So we have to get on with it together. We have to look after our country and there are ways that we can do it and we can learn from people who had such vast knowledge. And now that uh, humans are changing the climate, um, we need to learn from people who had great experience of changes in climate because the world's climate has been changing ever since it began. But what we're doing now is humans are changing climate. And that is something that we can change. We can get involved in that. Mm -hmm. And we can look at ways of mitigating the deleterious effects of our living on the planet so that we can save it. No, I don't want to go to another planet. Um, I'll wave goodbye to anyone who wishes to leave. I think our most important job as humans is to look after this home. Aboriginal people would call her Mother Earth and celebrate uh, the great resources that she gives us and her willingness to support us, her willingness to love and support us. And if we think we're God and that we can create any chemical to do our bidding, then I think the last 20 years have proven us incorrect. In fact, Rachel Carson in 1974 wrote a book uh, that is very, very relevant to today's societies around the world. And the, the thing about perennial plants is they sequester carbon. So if we wanted to meet our Tokyo, Tokyo carbon emission reduction targets, one of the best things we could do was to convert some of our farmlands 
to perennial grasslands, take them back to perennial grasslands. And the soil analysis on this property here shows us that uh, over the last 250 years, there have been uh, frequent wildfires on the property as evidenced by large uh, cubes of carbon in the, in the soil profile. But after, before 250 years, that those carbon deposits are fine. They're all minuscule. They just look grey in the soil rather than black. And that's because in those days uh, it was grass being burnt, not trees, and it was being deliberately burnt by Aboriginal people to support the grasses, to uh, renew the nutrition in the soil for those grasses to grow. And our last bushfires in Victoria in January 2020, we lost all our fences, um, but we also lost a crop of kangaroo grass that we were about to harvest. We had the tractor in the paddock with the harvester attached, and within hours I had to detach the harvester and put on the firefighting uh, trailer and do a completely different job. And we were dismayed, and I, I felt really terrible for all the people all the UN people who'd worked on this farm over a year to get us to the point where we were about to harvest and we lost it in hours. Um, but what happened was soon when the fire stopped, and that did, you know, here that didn't happen until the um, first week in March, um, we got a new grass growing. It was, had been a minor grass in our landscape prior to the fire but it became the dominant species after the fire. We call it Mamajanaluk, dancing grass, because that's what it does in the breeze. But we harvested that in May. So the fires went through us January, February. We harvested another grass in May and turned it into flour. And um, during the COVID, my daughter's family had to stay here for three months. My daughter made a loaf of bread every two days using uh, dancing grass combined with other flowers. And it was beautiful. Um, you know, in the end, you, you forgot what you were eating. You just enjoyed your bread more. And I had three grandchildren here then, so the, the bread they were eating was um, better for them than they'd had before. So it just it proved to us uh, that Mother Earth really, really wanted to recover. And despite all the damage we've done to her, there is a time for us to change our habits, protect Mother Earth, look after our people. But the hardest thing of all, Australia, is making sure that Aboriginal people are included in these benefits. That's going to be the hard part. And it's not rocket science but it seems to defy Australians time and time again. Today's a new day. I reckon we can do it. Um, Bruce is coming to us um, from country um, and uh, you're hearing some additional noises in his background um, and that is because he's got people working on his home. So just to let you know that we can't really do anything much about the screwdrivers and the um, uh, power tools in the background, um, but 
um, I think we're, we're doing quite well. So uh, thank you very much for that. So over to you, Angela. <laughs> Thank you, Professor Jackson Pulver, and thank you for having me at this Sydney Ideas Yarn. I feel very honoured, and thank you, Uncle Bruce, for that. Um, I'm here representing a, a small part of a really big project, so I'd like to firstly acknowledge the Gomorrah people from the land on which I live and work, not where I am today, but where this project is based, um, and pay my deepest respects to the people and the, the knowledge that they're sharing, um, and in particular, the, the community members in Narrabri, Weewar, and also the other women that I work with up on country um, that are sharing their knowledge and donating their time and their resources to this work that we're doing together, which is so much fun. And I'd also like to acknowledge and thank the non-Aboriginal people that are contributing time and resources to the project as well. Um, there's a lot of land and equipment um, and, again, volunteer time people are putting in, which is really, really wonderful. So, thank you. So, this morning I'm going to do a little bit of a – sorry, this afternoon – a little bit of a what's next because I, like many people, read The Dark Emu book by Uncle Bruce a couple of years ago and was a combination of incredibly excited but very frustrated thinking, oh, why wasn't I told this? Why isn't, aren't people doing anything about this? And then I thought about it and realized, well, maybe I should do something about this. So I humbled myself and um, with the university's blessing, went out and started talking to the community members in Narrabri and Weewar and said, if we were going to do something relating to the foods that come from grasslands on Gomorrah country, um, what would you like to do? What sort of projects would work? Who should we speak to and involve in this work? Um, and then how can we do something that will be of the most benefit in the long term? And that started off this amazing conversation, which has led to an amazing project, um, bringing together um, traditional knowledge and also um, more modern knowledges and technologies um, to figure out how can we make um, the, the system of food production and, and Uncle Bruce said, oh, is it agriculture or is it hunter-gathering? Whatever, it's, it's the system of food production that's sustainable. Um, how can we bring this sustainable system into a, a modern, um, modern food production chain, into the modern markets, um, and at least doing this on Gomorrah country? And what we learnt was we can't just do this a few demonstration plots and we can't really just do a few practice loaves or a few glasshouse experiments or a few lab tests. We actually have to do this for real on a hectare scale um, because to actually have an impact, we have to do it for real in real life um, at a big scale. So to sequester enough carbon to make a difference, it has to be over thousands of hectares. To be able to produce enough of this grain so that people can eat it regularly, not just a once a year at a fancy restaurant, but eventually be able to eat it regularly um, to actually make an improvement in gut health and in heart health, um, we need quite a lot. Um, and to be able to, to really have the economic impact for remote communities that people have talked about and employment opportunities and things like that, you need to do it at scale. So um, with that, I'd like to show a few photos. We've got a lot of partners that we work with up on Gomorrah country that have donated land. And this includes the, the TAFE up at Moree. Um, New South Wales TAFE have um, got 10 hectares set aside for teaching and research. Um, there are several private landholders that have set aside hectares for this. Um, there are Aboriginal land councils. Uh, I know of at least three that have set aside land for growing grasses up there as well. Um, but the photo I've got here is actually the university's research plot. 
So it's about 10 hectares in size. From the air, it looks bare because um, just after, just before we took that photo, um, we put a, a cool burn across it. So there's the photo there as well of the burn. Um, and the, the burning rejuvenates the land and gets it ready um, for planting. So we're actually going to revegetate it with the target species, which are the ones that we think are the ones that used to be used for food um, and also the ones that we think will be able to have the most market value. And again, you can't really see it from the photo, but that land's actually split it into three sections because we're going to try doing it three slightly different ways and see which one works best. And when I say works best, that's looking at the economics of the system, the environmental benefits of the system, and also the cultural and social benefits of the system. So it's that three-pronged sustainability that we're trying to look at. So grass takes time to grow. So while we're waiting for our research plot to grow, we're working with um, with private and um, other landholders as well. So the photo on the left is my technician Callum doing a great job there harvesting button grass. And then the photo on the right is using um, the Rosevale Reaper, which is basically a big vacuum. And we bought that one off Colsice. Um, and that, that yellow thing at the front is just a set of paddles. And as it drives forward through the field, it just taps the heads of the grain. And if it's ripe, it falls off and it gets sucked into those big receptacles at the back. Um, and if it's not ripe, it stays in the field and we can come through and do a second harvest later. And that's how perennials grass, perennial grasses differ uh, a little bit from the, um, from the annual grasses like wheat, um, sorghum and others like that. So there's many, many, many different species of grains that can be eaten. And here's just a few of the examples that we've collected um, from Gomorrah country and similar areas. So there's diversities of sizes, of shapes and of colours, different nutritional properties. Um, of those flowers that are there on the right, the darker one, that's um, actually not a grass species, but it grows in grassland. It's locally known as damu um, or purslane or pigweed. Um, and that seed is one of the highest plant-based sources of omega-3 fatty acid um, that you can get anywhere. It's right up there with linseed. It's quite amazing. Um, and then the one down the bottom is acacia, which is very high in protein. And the plants as well are very important in the ecosystem because they, um, they increase the nitrogen content of the soil. But all the other ones there are grasses and you can see the beautiful coloured differences um, and you can also imagine the flavour and aroma differences too. So of course, a science project that involves food also means eating, which is great. So on the left there, we have Callum with Uncle Bruce and his wife, Lynn, doing some amazing Johnny Cake cooking on the barbie. So that's up in Narrabri. Um, in the middle photo is my two-year-old daughter having a lot of fun being taught how to make Johnny Cakes by the women out at Weewar, making a big mess in the Lauk office there, having a lot of fun. Um, and then the third photo is actually cooking Johnny Cakes on country. So that's at Tulladunna Reserve, which is um, just on the road out towards Walgett, out towards Burke, um, on the other side of town. Um, and again, beautiful day out there, pre-COVID, so we could get a couple hundred people there. Um, and we just made Johnny Cakes together from a whole lot of different species and see, saw which ones tasted best and how it all worked when you're doing it over hot coals. I think anything tastes better when it's cooked over hot coals. So on the far uh, on the left there is one of the Johnny Cakes we made that day. So that's pure native millet flour, um, which is the, um, the Gamilaray word for that's ghoulie. And then you can see that red bit in the middle is a kwandong that was baked into the cake and it was absolutely delicious. I ate way too many of them and forgot how high in fibre they are and was absolutely stuffed full before I, <laughs> before I could eat anything else for the day. So it's absolutely delicious. 
Um, but then also we are doing some science as well. So the other photo there are some loaves baked in the lab. Um, the two on the outside are warrigo grass and, or sorry, not pure warrigo. It's 15% warrigo grass done by one of the students, Anna. Um, and the middle loaf is made from quinoa. So 15% quinoa. The rest is wheat. Um, and so we're doing that to not just look at the native grains on their own, but native grains in context to see how it might work in a food production chain. And then the last set of photos. Um, so this is Callum again in the glasshouse. So part of working with the community has been not just doing science experiments for us, um, but also getting involved with the school kids. So a whole lot of those plants there got donated to Narrabri and Weewa High Schools for the agriculture plots um, and also for them to hopefully, once they grow up, to be able to use in their home ec food classes as well. Um, and then also the, the photo um, beside that one is some Mitchell grass seed, um, just showing the two different ways that you can use the seed for planting. And part of that is about working the economics of the system. So um, when you coat the seed, it's a lot more expensive. Um, and that coating is, is not a, a fancy chemical. It's actually just a, a dye added to a clay mineral. And the clay mineral there helps the seed to germinate. But it's a bit more expensive. So part of the economics of the system and these tests that we're doing is figuring out, well, is it going to be worth um, coating seed or do we just um, put it in without any coatings on it. Um, with that, I'd, I'd just like to say thank you for having me. And it really is a, a community effort um, to bring these grains back. It is going to be something that's a confluence of knowledge. It's kind of like we have two different streams and they come together to make one river. Um, at the point at which they mix, it, it can get a little bit, um, little bit up and down, but it's well worth it in the end because it's a stronger river going forward. So I feel very honoured to be here and, and part of this and um, very honoured to be eating bread together. And I did bring a few loaves to, to show live. So this one here is... I, I'm not a baker. I, full disclosure, I'm terrible at baking. I'm terrible at cooking. My husband is the chef in our house. So this is done in a bread maker where I just had to push the buttons. Um, but it also shows the resilience as well of these grains and how anybody can do it, even um, non-chef people like me. So this one here is, is just a normal bread mix, but I've added to it acacia and um, native, uh, native grain kibble. So I just smashed it up um, and then pop, pop them in as kibble into a normal bread mix. Easy way to increase your put some of these grains into your diet. But this one's made with about one sixth of um, button grass flour. So you can see the loaf is slightly smaller, um, but it's still it's still delicious, obviously, um, and it's still still got a good crumb structure and much higher in fiber as well. Um, and then this one is the dancing grass. So again, you can see even there, there's differences between the dancing grass loaf um, and the button grass loaf, both made with about <laughs> one sixth flowers in there. Um, but different tastes, different textures, different flavors, but all very healthy um, and really delicious. So with that, um, maybe we can hand back and start having a bit more of a conversation with some questions. Fantastic. Um, who's hungry? Hands up. Yeah, no, we all are. It's absolutely fantastic. And, and what a wonderful thing to be able to see an output of the kind of work um, that is happening on country. Um, so thank you, everybody. Um, it's really good. So, um, Bruce, uh, you're um, uh, in a position to be able to make some comments about what Angela's just shared, and then we'll open up to some audience questions. The, um, the bread that Angela showed is, um, you know, so exciting. It's the kind of bread my daughter and myself were uh, cooking uh, here from our the, the flour made from grain off our own country 
um, and for us to you and people, that was really, really important. But it just proves that it's possible um, and commercially viable. We do have to get the, um, the, our harvest has to increase. So we need broad acres. Um, we hope to get access to more lands like Angela showed um, where we're, we're doing thousands of hectares. Some Aboriginal communities have, have that kind of um, acreage and we need to uh, work with those communities so that Aboriginal people can get the benefit of this culinary revolution, which is going to happen because these breads are flavours that Australian people haven't tasted. Aboriginal people used to have this every day um, and now... Uh, Australia is going to taste them, but it's so important that in consuming the food, which is the inheritance delivered by Aboriginal people, that people don't forget that it is an inheritance and that uh, this is Aboriginal land and the benefits uh, have to be delivered to Aboriginal people as well as to the rest of Australia. Australia will benefit from this commercially, um, environmentally and nutritionally and health-wise. There's no doubt about it that this is going to be good for Australia. But it, you know, how couldn't you, under those circumstances, then consider making sure that Aboriginal people benefit as well? Otherwise, it's another disposition and a really callous disposition, a more callous disposition than the first one. So this is in front of Australia. It is a really exciting time. I think Australia is capable of it. There are some commentators who don't want us to go there. Um, make our own minds up. Uh, read the Explorer's journals. Go and have a look at the fields young Callum is sowing and harvesting. See for yourself, because I've just come back from Mullamine, um, uh, where we were talking to farmers about these very things, farmers who have been progressively discouraged by the fall in fertility of their soils, uh, the changing climate, which threatens the kind of crops they had been growing, and their willingness to... Uh, try new things. Not everyone in those audiences were, wanted to hear the news of Aboriginal excellence. Um, I've got a few vivid examples of conversations which I would rather not have had, but 99% of all conversations I have these days are positive. This is coming from non-Aboriginal Australians who want to learn and want to do the best thing by Mother Earth. So I believe the future is very exciting, but I, I'd like it to be exciting for all of us, black and white. Yeah, that's a very good point. I, I agree there is an absolute thirst, a hunger, a desire for people to know more about uh, this country. Uh, there's a lot to learn and a lot to know. So um, at the top of the list, we've got Sophie, and she asks, Bruce, how can Australia incorporate Aboriginal agricultural knowledge to ensure Australia's food security into the future? Are you concerned about global national yield productivity as climate change worsens? 
Well, I think um, people only need to look at what Angela's done or come down here to Goombara, uh, the farm on the Wallagra, uh, where Black Duck Foods uh, is growing these these foods. That That will show you that it's possible to do. And, yes, I am concerned about the future because um, Australian soil fertility is plummeting. You know, it's not just about soil loss, it's about soil fertility. And that uh, fertility has been decreasing um, subsequent to the use of things like superphosphate. Superphosphate will give you a bounce. There are very, very green paddocks around here on the the Wallagra now as a result of using superphosphate. But the soil content is very poor. So the things that are growing there aren't as nutritious for cattle and humans as they could be. So this is an area where we have to put a lot of our resources in maintaining the quality of soil and not giving up on it, not thinking that a brand new chemical is going to do it for us. One of the things that farmers have found is in growing perennial grains, they don't need a lot of water, not much more than falls out of the sky, and they don't need any chemicals. No fertilisers, no poisons, no herbicides, pesticides. And so that is where these farmers are making a profit. They're not making as much money, but they're making a profit for the first time in 30 years because they are their, their top line item in their expenditure was was chemicals um, and they're virtually not spending that anymore. They're saving on diesel, saving on compaction from tractors because they're not using those things as much because the perennial pasture will look after itself. It's, it's, gonna, it's possible now we're doing it. Um, other farmers have begun doing it and they are profiting from it. And I think Australia is going to profit from it. There will be doomsayers and sceptics, um, but do the research for yourself. Don't rely on me. Don't rely on the, the commentariat um, who are opposed to anything to do with Aboriginal achievement. Uh, have a look for yourself. The evidence is there. We'll all be eating these foods, breads, tubers very, very soon. The future is very exciting. It is indeed. And, um, you know, the, the recognition that for a very, very long time um, people have been able to thrive on this country, it certainly, um, you know, says something, something way beyond than any of the words that we can possibly share today. Um, Eric Bittner, um, 25 responses. Angela, what Indigenous plants do you recommend to grow on our nature strips, the last commons in our cities? Is there a handbook to growing grasses so we can ditch our lawnmowers? I love that one. (laughs) I'd like to ditch my lawnmower too. (laughs) Um, Well, if you're talking about the cities, um, it's probably best to start with um, people that are experts in that sort of country. So I, I live and work on Gomorrah country, which is inland. We have different species that naturally grow up there. So rather than recommend some exact species, what I, one comment that I might make about the general principles here is that uh, this whole project that I'm trying to trying to work towards is figuring out how to actually to what practices that we need to do. But more and more I'm learning that before we try and change the species that we use to produce food or change the practices that we use on those species um, or change our land land management practices, I've learned that I personally have had to take a step back and realise where those 
practices came from. So why, what was the underlying reasons why people chose to burn or people chose to use perennial plants more often or people on this country, you know, for, what, what were the reasons underlying it? Because when I, when I grow, was growing up, I was taught about you've got to care for your environment, you've got to manage your land. But the way it was explained to me um, by my own culture and my ancestors, because I'm not an Aboriginal person, was that kind of this is earth and this is us and we live on earth and we, ha- we only have one earth, unless you want to live on Mars, we only have one earth and we've got to look after it. We are responsible for it um, and we have, to, we have to make sure we pass on a sustainably and healthy earth, sustainable healthy earth to our kids and our grandkids. It's kind of this is us and we live on earth. Um, but something one of the elders said up on Gomorrah country really stuck with me. Um, and that was the way they think about who he, he thought about country was we are part of country and country is part of us. So the underlying philosophy is a bit different. So, you know, I, I was kind of taught oh, we live on earth and we're responsible for it rather than you are part and it is part of you. And if you come at it with that attitude, it changes the way that you apply the practices. So what species you use and how you integrate that into your diet and whether you grow monocultures or, or polycultures, for example, or whether you burn or don't burn, um, the same practice can be applied in different ways depending on what the underlying reason is you're doing for it. Um, so regarding specifically about the commons in cities, <laughs> um, my first encouragement would be um, find some people that are traditional knowledge holders for your city and try and understand what they used to do and why, um, and then that will probably inform, okay, what species should we be using today? Yeah, it's a great response. And actually, a lot of people are asking questions about how to get resources. So, Janigar, he writes, Uncle Bruce, where can we access resources to learn more about traditional farming, horticultural practices for our own lives? And lots and lots of you want to hear that answer too. So, what what say you, Bruce Pascoe? Well, well, at Black Duck Foods, we'll be growing um, a lot of these uh, foods in tube stock. Um, So, that will be available in the future. But um, Peter Cooley at Indigigrow at La Perouse is already doing it. Sharon Windsor at Mudgee um, has a vast knowledge of these foods. There are people um, around who are doing this, um, so use Dr Google and, and have a crack. But these things are going to be uh, available to us um, very, very soon. Fantastic. So there's lots of opportunities for us to learn and uh, no doubt more will be coming uh, apparent. We've got a, another question here specifically from the students that are um, in the master's program and they're asking about what is the number one most crucial message that we can take out of today's talk uh, to help us understand both the biological and cultural diversity and how this can enhance our capacity to face an unprecedented future? That's a tough question, I know. Who would like to take that one? Um, I can go first if you'd like, but would definitely like to hear Uncle Bruce's thoughts because it's such a big question. Maybe I'll speak to just specifically about that diversity question because Uncle Bruce and I, before we came online, were talking about that. Um, the way that current agriculture practices generally work is a, what I call a monoculture. So you'll have many hectares of one species. And the reason it's 
done that way is because it makes it easy to mechanize. Um, and that, that method is not necessarily bad or horrible. And in fact, it's what's, it, it produces a large amount of yield per hectare, which is very important for food security um, and for developing our societies overall. Um, but we're talking about diversity. If we want to go to a more diverse ecosystem, like was traditionally used in this country for thousands of years, um, there are implications for the product quality that comes out afterwards. So if we're going to reintroduce an ecosystem method of production, which is the best way, in my opinion, the best way to get the environmental benefits and many of the cultural benefits too, from what I'm learning and what I'm from my perspective. Um, I think we also need to, to consider what happens post-harvest because if you get a, I've got some examples here as well. So, that's Mitchell grass and that one's kangaroo grass. <laughs> I love you, Zoom. Um, so, you can see how different they are though, the structure of the grain and the structure of the, the mess that they come out with in the header. And so, if you're going to market that and sell that, you need to kind of figure out how you're going to turn these diverse products into something that consumers can use. Um, and it's all possible. Obviously, it's been done for thousands of years, but it's just different to the way that we do it now. So, how can we make it happen? Probably a bit of research and a bit of talking, but talking all the way along the food production chain. So, talking to the chefs, talking to the, the grain millers, um, or also the other, the other food processors that might not use them as a, a, a flour, but might use them as a kibble um, or as a raw grain and figure out, okay, how can we take what is a diverse product in the field into something that can be edited? Um, in modern markets. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be um, really exciting to analyse these complex food systems that Aboriginal people had because in the Western District of Victoria, uh, the first uh, European farmers noticed that there was kangaroo grass, myrnong, orchids, bulb and lily, all growing together through a mass of moss. Um, a really complex system which we're, we're trying. Um, we destocked this farm on the Wallagra River two years ago. We had the horrible fires of 2020 go through January, February, March. And uh, we were out in the paddock the other day just analysing what we did have and what the prospects were for our new harvest. And we saw about five different grasses. We saw glycines. Um, uh, we saw appleberry all growing in this paddock that had, um, when I bought it was virtually naked with the bones of its body sticking out. Um, and now it's clothed in the, a huge variety of plants, including orchids. And uh, one of the orchids, a uh, leek orchid, has a, um, a circumference like that coming out of the ground. The power of that plant is incredible. We know that Aboriginal people ate a huge variety of, of orchids. And in that paddock, they, we came across six or seven different orchids. So it's a really complex growing regime. How do you handle it? Um, we were, um, you know, we harvested that paddock last year um, for uh, we, uh, dancing grass. Um, but then in this season, we've got orchids there. Can we harvest those as well? Well, I think we can. I think we can do all these things on the one plot of land. It'll be complex. Uh, it, it, there'll be intricate structures and uh, methods that we have to uh, utilise, but we don't have to do anything apart from watch it grow and then harvest it and um, process it. 
then our soil structure is going to be better. People remark on the difference of these paddocks than they were now just by getting rid of hard-hoofed animals. We've probably got 200 kangaroos, um, but they're not making any impact on the soil. They're probably adding to it. And they eat the occasional orchid um, and a lot of grass, but I'm happy to share that with them. We should be harvesting kangaroos as well. And, you know, it's really important for us, I think, to look at complexity rather than the monocultures that we've been utilising because um, we've seen around the world in um, soil health and food nutrition that those methods are failing us. Thank you. There's, I mean, we could go on for hours with this conversation and judging from all of the questions that you've been putting in as well as the many that I'm getting online uh, here through a different mechanism, um, where people are asking us to make sure the resources that have been spoken about today are shared. Um, and so we'll certainly be asking our panellists to uh, write them down for us and we can make them available. We're not quite finished yet, though. Um, we have another five minutes, which is great. Um, the final question for our panellists before I ask you for the one thing that you think that we should do as a university, as a society or as a community uh, about this. But first we'll ask, um, is the 15 to 20% use of Indigenous grains about palatability, cooking methods, or something else? Would an ideal end result be 100% grain or not? So you first, Angela, and then we'll ask Bruce. Sure. Um, I did that as an example here because in a bread maker, I could make it work. Um, but just like any gluten-free grains, all these native grains are gluten-free. Um, just like any of them, they have unique properties and they don't, they don't make a nice loaf. So Absolutely, you can. You're most welcome. Um, they they are quite strong tasting. Um, it's a quite maybe it's an acquired taste, maybe not. Um, species taste different. So can we do 100% button grass? Maybe. Can we do 100% dancing grass? Maybe. Could we do 100% digit grass? I don't know. I haven't tried that bread yet. Maybe. Um, so it it depends a bit on species, and it also depends on the preference of the consumer. And what I did here, I, I mixed wheat. But you can you can make 100% gluten-free bread as well. So you could mix something like um, buckwheat flour and you could mix that with native flour as well to make a gluten-free version. Thanks, Angela. What about you, Bruce? Um, I was hunting around for the traditional loaves because I'd been told um, that there were in existence loaves of bread by Aboriginal people that have been collected I, I guess I spent two years hunting the, those down because they were supposed to be in the collections. People couldn't find them. When they went to the drawer, it was empty um, uh, or it was, just wasn't on their records. And then um, at Melbourne um, Museum, Kimberly Moulton, Aboriginal woman, uh, did a different kind of search and came across these breeds. Um, they were in a drawer. They were risen that far. Um, they were 100%. Australian grain, and uh, they just look like a little cob loaf that you would see on the shelf in a boutique um, baker, and, you know, they are yet to be analysed. Um, it's so important for us to analyse those, find out what the, the rising agent was, what was the combination of grains, when was it harvested. All of that stuff is available to us. It's like brain surgery. Um, it's a lot easier than brain surgery, but we haven't done it. Those we couldn't find the breads, even though they're in our museum, because we didn't regard them. 
now that they're of interest to us, let's do the science as well. And let's not penny pinch about this science. It is really important for us. And I think that um, we, we too have been uh, making bread with combinations uh, because we just don't have enough flour at the moment, but we will. And um, we, we've, we've never mentioned these things on, on the 150 cooking shows that Australia um, supports. Um, we don't talk about Murnon. We don't talk about Australian grains. We don't talk about Aboriginal people, but we will. Yes. Beautiful. We are so close to the finish. I'm just going to hand over very quickly to our wonderful guests today and ask them, what is the one thing you want people to go away with from today's talk, whether it's a call to action or whether it's a comment that you'd like to make? We have a very short period of time left. So I'll start with you, Angela. What's the one thing you want people to go away with from today? Um, my one thing would be just like when I read the book and got frustrated, then I did something about it. It's just encourage everyone, whatever your capacity is, do something about it, but don't just do a little thing. Do something at scale, whatever your capacity is. Thank you. And to you, Bruce, final word. Love the earth. Love your mother, earth. Uh, don't see her as being deficient. She's perfect. She's all we've got. Uh, don't try and use human hubris to improve, um, but mostly, above all, make sure Aboriginal people are included and respected in this process. Beautiful. I don't think any of us could have, could have put in any of this differently or better. So thank you very much. I'm very conscious that many of you are saying, when's the follow-up lecture? I'm not too sure. It's over to Sydney Ideas. But honestly, we could go on for a half a day or more on this one. As is always, there are many, many people to thank. First and foremost, the Winch family for the opportunity of having the funding to be able to do this. Uh, secondly, to you, Bruce Pascoe, it's been absolutely wonderful. Angela Patterson, thank you very much for coming down on a train uh, to come and visit with us. And most importantly, I'd like to say thank you, thank you, thank you to each and every one of you uh, for coming along, spending a lunchtime. I hope it's been worth your while. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast. For more information, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney hyphen ideas. It's where you'll find the transcript for this podcast and our contact details if you'd like to get in touch with a question or feedback. If you haven't already, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss a new episode. Search for Sydney Ideas on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud. Finally, we want to acknowledge that this podcast was made in Sydney, which sits on the land of the Gadigal people of the Euro Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built.